All right, here we go. Hello, hello. How are you doing? Wherever you are listening to this, I hope life is good for you today. That's not just a throwaway comment. I mean it. I hope life's good right now. And if it is, embrace it. And if it's not, it'll pass. As you can imagine, I just meditated, so I'm feeling calm. Yet, the meditations I do, whenever they end, I say, all right, easier said than done. I listen to a lady named Tamara Levitt. She has the popular app Calm. Now, there's a ton of apps out there. There's a ton of guided meditations and gurus and spiritual leaders, but Tamara's the best. She's the Michael Jordan of guided meditations. Download the app. Pay for it if you need to. Calm. And her message today, it hit me. And I know I'll forget about it in 20 minutes. I know that special feeling will dissipate soon. But in the moment, I felt like, wow, I'm learning. I am learning about equanimity. Do you all know this word, equanimity? I feel like I only kind of knew it. There's a few words like that where we all kind of know them. So equanimity. I'm just going to read it straight from my phone. Straight definition. A state of psychological stability and composure, which is undisturbed by experience of or exposure to emotions, pain, or other phenomena that may cause others to lose their balance of mind. So what does that mean? In layman's terms? And what does layman's mean? I don't know. Somebody that just needs it to be put simply at all times? A person without a lot of knowledge in a subject? Give me layman's terms. Talk to me like an eight-year-old, like Michael Scott would say on The Office. I think I mentioned The Office a little too often on this podcast. But back to equanimity. Pure mental state. Not being so affected by every passing intense emotion. Upeka, the Buddhist term, as Tamara talked about. Upeka, a Buddhist term. Balance your mind. Don't be attached to every little sliver of pain that comes your way. Don't view everything with such intense bias. And I guess quite simply, don't grasp things you can't control. Upeka. Breathe in and out. Namaste. All right, it's going to be a great weekend for you all because I just guided you through a little equanimity. Study it. Get to know it. Do those meditations. Now I'm just preachy. Do it. All right, I don't mean to brag, but I've seen every Richard Pryor movie at least once. And none of them are really good. If you're a Richard Pryor fan, his comedy is at the highest level. That's a fact. We're talking about the greatest stand-up comedian of all time. I think most comics would admit that. Now, sure, there's a lot of good comics in the history of stand-up, but he is widely regarded as the best. Yet his movies, none of them are really great. Silver Streak with Gene Wilder was pretty good. A lot of his buddy movies with Gene were pretty good. Stir Crazy was pretty good. Another You, that was pretty bad. But they're all funny. If you like Richard, you just like seeing him. And usually the theme is, what's the worst that could happen to this guy? He just gets messed with. His life falls apart in most of these movies. He gets beat up. He gets cheated on. It's really just a rock-bottom situation for Richard in every movie. And he plays that character perfectly. He just was not a great actor. Not like I'm saying he should have been cast in a movie for being such a thespian. You know, this isn't Daniel Day-Lewis. We're not talking about Tom Hanks. But that's the unintentional comedy of watching a Richard Pryor movie, is that there are scenes where he just looks uncomfortable. 
and he delivers lines in a way that are stiff. And you know the parameters, the boundaries of a script are not good for Richard. He was a guy who was so brilliant off the cuff. But I was thinking about one of his movies called Moving. And Moving may have been his worst. It's really not a good comedy, but I've seen Moving a few times. It's a 1988 movie where, guess what? His family is moving. So one of the famous scenes is Richard and his wife. They go to this beautiful home in the suburbs, and they're being shown the home by this old white couple. And the old man just keeps making the same joke. Hey, you like these cabinets? We're taking them with us. Hey, you like that pool? We're taking it with us. You like the kitchen? We're taking it with us. You like these stairs, these custom handcrafted stairs? We're taking it with us. <laughs> and he just keeps laughing and laughing. And if you watch Richard throughout these scenes, he's not laughing. He's disturbed. There's the comedy. And then, of course, they buy the house. And when Richard comes with his kids, his cute kids in the back seat, he goes, close your eyes. We're getting to the house. It's moving day. And when they get there, there's no windows, there's no pool, there's no kitchen, there's no stairs, there's no cabinets, there's no floors. The old white couple truly took it with them. And Richard calls them and goes, what the fuck was that about? And he goes, look, I have the transcript right here. I was recording the conversation. I revealed that we are taking it with us. And I kept thinking about this. And I kept thinking about this recently because we've gone on a lot of home hunts. We've been searching and searching and searching. We attend the open houses. And we get wide-eyed and we get hopeful and then it's discouraging and stressful. But recently, I guess this is my long way of saying our offer was actually accepted on a home. So we're moving. There you go. Little news. We have breaking news here on the Here We Go podcast. We're moving out like Billy Joel sings. We're moving out. So once your offer is accepted, they don't just give you keys, believe it or not. There's a bunch of shit. And I don't just mean there's a good amount of things to do. I mean, there's a bunch of shit to do. This is called escrow. And isn't that why you tune in to hear me discuss all the many details and signatures and emails and phone calls and minutia and headaches that escrow will become for us. And at times it does become so stressful that you forget about the joy at the end, which is moving into a home. But we did get a counter offer. So we made an offer and the counter offer was not, hey, we want more of your money. It was, hey, is it okay if we leave things on the property? The sellers put this into writing. Is it okay if we leave some things on the property or take some things off the property? And of course, we sign our lives away because we were so excited. Nothing impulsive, but our agent said, this is normal. So I was thinking, yeah, all right, good. Love the house. Let's just sign it, sign it, sign the counter offer. And then that Richard Pryor movie got into my head. What are they taking with them? The oven, the fridge, the washing machine? Are they taking the carpet? Are they taking the roof? We're taking it with us. So I hope not. We're not celebrating just yet. But I'm hoping the house we do move into looks kind of like the house that we attended during the open house that looked nice. It was staged well. Staging is always kind of weird, right? Because what if they stage it too nicely? And then you go, well, I can't do that. We're just going to hit up Ross and Ikea. But it's staged with like the Palace of Versailles silverware and a chandelier that's beautiful and couches that match the curtains and throw pillows that look like you don't even want to put your head on them. They're so pristine. I've seen some houses that are really well staged 
And it's a great way to sell a house, of course. But then you realize, wait, when we move in, it's empty. When we move in, then we have to bring all of our stuff covered in dog hair and baby barf. And that's when we really make it ours. So we're making it ours. We're moving out, Billy Joel. We're moving, Richard Pryor. Offer accepted. There it is. We got some news. But more importantly, if you're looking for movies, sometimes you're like me, you just scroll through on demand, you scroll through Netflix, and even though there's 1,000 options, you go, God, there's nothing. There's nothing right now. Why don't you check out an old Richard Pryor and appreciate the unintentional comedy? Or why don't you actually go see Richard do some comedy live on Sunset Strip, one of the best. Or a documentary about Richard. There was a good documentary actually about Richard Pryor. And it showed the dark underbelly of this man. I even read a 500-page book. Are you proud of me? A 500-page book written by a Cal Berkeley professor about Richard Pryor. That's how much I care to learn about what was going through his mind. How could a kid that was born in a brothel in Peoria, Illinois, become the most brilliant and hilarious comic of all time? That is my plug for Scott Saul's book about Richard Pryor. And then when I finished, I actually tweeted at him, and he tweeted back at me. That's the most validating feeling. Not like this author is a giant celebrity, but that's an aspect of Twitter I really like. Occasionally, you tweet at somebody, you show some gratitude, which is one of the keys to happiness. Let people know that you appreciate their work. And sometimes they'll go, hey, thanks, appreciate that. That's something we all need to do more. The people we like, the people we're impressed with, the people we want to give praise to, just do it. Don't ever hold a compliment in. This podcast is getting preachy today, but don't ever hold a compliment in. Like a sneeze, like a fart, just let it out. Let it out. Put it out there into the world, into the ether. You can only control the sphere around you. You might be powerless in this world of misery, but you can still control the people that you make feel good. I'm just going to keep going. Sounds like I'm reading people's Instagram pages where they just put up quotes, quotes, quotes. Give me the likes. This is not my quote, but I'm putting this quote onto my Instagram page, and now I need you to click like. Hey, do you like this quote that I Googled? It's not mine. All right, let me share something beautiful. Let me share something positive. The high school I work at filled the position of assistant principal. And the new assistant principal, we're all getting to know everybody. We're all still tiptoeing around one another. Hey, what are you all about? Hey, what are you all about? Hey, do you even know my name? Do you know my name? So there's some newness at the high school I work at. There's some newness. And this new lady sent out an email and it said, on the days where staff collaborates, I want to welcome you to take my yoga class. And I said, fuck yeah. You kidding me? Collaboration's good. It can be helpful, but sometimes it's not. Let's just be honest. Sometimes tired teachers are not that productive in a collaboration zone with other staff members. We're being honest today. And in a staff email said, hey, come take my yoga class. Turns out this lady is also a professional yoga instructor, not just an assistant principal. So I went in and I wasn't even wearing yoga clothes. I'm wearing corduroy pants and a collared shirt, which is a classy outfit to teach in, but it's the worst outfit for yoga. So there's about a few weeks ago, I come in there. They already have yoga mats. There's nice music playing. Little Enya. Any Enya fans in the crowd today? Nope, me either. But they got the nice music. 
and there's this dance studio on campus and it even felt like a real yoga studio. So it's like I was completely leaving the education world and now I'm entering the yoga dojo into the zone. And it was phenomenal. And this lady is talking about how we do need to take care of ourselves. No matter what your job is, I guarantee you get stressed. I guarantee you get pissed off. You get drained. You reach the limit, even if you love your job. I truly believe that everybody who loves their job still reaches that moment where they're just so exhausted that they need the old recharge of the battery. You need the old weekend in wine country. Take a vacation. Sit in a hot tub. But yoga, I've only done yoga maybe nine or ten times in my life. I almost forgot what it can do to the soul. And it was a guided yoga. So she's not just telling us which position to do. Vanyasa down, downward dog, happy baby, wounded warrior. Is that one? Wounded warrior? Or is that just how I do it? What's it called? Peaceful warrior? Or warrior one, warrior two? I don't know. But as she was guiding us through, I actually left the profession, mentally. I was no longer thinking about grading. I was no longer thinking about lesson planning. She really brought us into a different zone. And I thought, this is what we need. This was good. It's not just that I need yoga, but the aspect of yoga where you're just focused. What do they call that? Zone? Whatever it is. Whether you paint, whether it's basketball, if you could ever just truly be in what you're doing. Which I know to be very meta for a moment is this podcast. When I actually do this podcast, that's all I'm doing. I'm not doing anything on the side. I'm just turning on a microphone, bringing up this program, Audacity, that records my voice, and I go, and I go, and I go. Where's it going? Who knows? I write down a few bullet points, and then we wander around. We wander around the old stream of consciousness. Brain synapses firing. What happens during a bad podcast? They're firing slowly. And what they're firing off? Duds. What happens during a good podcast? I don't know. I feel like I'm the biggest critic because after every podcast, I go, yeah, the next one will be better. Yeah, the next one will be better. That's the type of project you want. You never want to say, I have conquered my craft. I bet even the greatest painters never say, yeah, that was a perfect painting I did. Maybe even the greatest football players, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, after the game, do you think they ever said, I played a perfect game? No. I think some of the greatest Success stories are people that never feel like they truly succeeded at the highest level. So their ambition kept pushing them and pushing them. What was I talking about? Yoga. So I'll just continue with a preachy podcast. Do yoga with your assistant principal if you can. Does that apply to everybody? Oh yeah, but here's what I wanted to talk about. Why is it so stressful? Social studies, world history, not stressful. Love my students, love the experience, love the content. Journalism, which is actually the true value of what I think I bring to this school based on my background and just what I'm trying to accomplish. Teaching journalism, that's where the stress is because you care so much. I have insomnia thinking about these students' stories and what the impact will be and watching them conduct interviews and collect sources, credible sources. I honestly think this is the New York Times in my head sometimes. So I put way too much pressure on myself, on the students, on this class. And every time a newspaper comes out, you hear a few compliments, but mostly you hear the opposite. A lot of the haters come out. Every time. Whether it's administration, perhaps some classmates, and that's part of it. You know, it's not like your average high school performance, whether it's band or theater or sculpting or painting, where the response really should be from the community, nice job, nice job. You know, you ever go to a high school play? You see the actors afterwards? 
you better tell them, nice job, these are teenagers. You ever go to a jazz performance, big band, orchestra, symphony, you see the kids afterwards, you tell them, nice job. Our newspaper's a little different. Sometimes it feels like a thankless endeavor. Like we work our asses off. My editing team does really solid work to put out a thousand copies of a 12-page tabloid and then kind of floats away. A little social media discussion. Maybe I hear from a couple of coworkers. But mainly, I think some people look at it and they get upset because we're only about 22 students, 22 people trying to capture the essence of a high school of about 1,400 kids. That's kind of hard. But part of it is to be fearless. Don't write what you think people want to read. Don't write what you think your teacher wants to read. Write from the heart. Write your truth. Make it accurate. Make it smooth. You better check that grammar, spelling, punctuation, but write about something that matters. And even if it's polarizing, even if you piss some people off, stand by it. You got to be brave. Think about the true journalists in the world right now, how brave they are. That's a profession that I think still remains underappreciated. You talk about journalism with people, a lot of people will just immediately bring up, ugh, fake news. We know it's a profession under fire, but if we could just focus on the good ones for a moment, I have a few in my class that are going to be professionals. There's no doubt about it, and I envy them. These are 15, 16, 17-year-olds that are writing at a level where I go, wow, you're fearless. You're more courageous than I would have been as a teenager, putting out these thoughts, saying, love me or hate me, I'm standing by my byline. I love it. The stress, I say embrace the stress. Let this inspire you. But it's not just one of those classes where I think everybody looks to appreciate. Not to say we want to be the shit disturbers of the high school, but you know what I mean. If you're going to put out a solid newspaper of a bunch of different perspectives and really capture the truth of a place just like every high school that's not perfect. There's not a perfect high school in America. Sometimes journalism captures the areas to improve. And that triggers people to want to beat the shit out of us. But you know what? Us versus the world. Didn't Tupac rap about that? Me against the world? That's our class. Tupac 101. But some of the topics they write about are unbelievable. This is just total promotion for that high school newspaper. Total promotion. The topics they come up with. I don't come up with the topics. They have the freedom They have the rights to write about what they want, and what they come up with is brilliant for the most part. All right, that's enough self-praise for a moment. I think it's story time. All right, so grab some popcorn. Get comfortable. Grab a blanket. It's getting cold out lately. I think it's story time. As we know, kids have to learn everything. You realize this. Sure, there's common sense. There's common sense. We all rely on common sense, and we hope that common sense kicks in early for a kid. But the first few years, you got to teach them everything. Hey, that burner, it's going to be hot. Hey, these stairs, you don't want to fall down them. Hey, that dog, you better ask before you pet. Don't get bit. That pool, you can't swim yet. Stay away. All of this stuff, they need to learn. There's no common sense for a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old. And even four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you sometimes wonder, do they have some common sense? So I guess a parent just has to adopt the mentality of, no, you got to teach them everything, even things that sound ridiculous. You got to teach them how to use glue. Got to teach them how to swipe on a cell phone. Actually, probably not. But it is amazing to see little kids, how they know how to navigate iPhones and iPads. It's impressive 
You know, it's almost like watching a primate. Wow, look at that little monkey. Use an iPad. Halfway impressive and then halfway worrisome that they're just going to be drawn into the glow of the electronics. All right, but I want you right now, think about things when you were tiny, little kid, that you just thought in your head before you were taught them. Before you were taught them. Try to take yourself back to age five or six. Think about some things that you believed about the world that were not true, just simply because you had not learned them yet. I can actually remember watching black and white TV, whether it was Shirley Temple or Mr. Ed or I Love Lucy, just Nick at Night reruns, and thinking, I was so young, I was thinking, wow, that's amazing that the world was black and white. I couldn't put it together that it was just black and white television. I thought the world back then looked like that at all times, that everybody just lived in black and white, that color existence had not been invented yet. Forget about color TV. I just felt like the world was black and white when I would watch those old shows. Okay, so you got to learn. No, no, no. This is called black and white TV in a colorful world. Isn't that interesting? I Love Lucy, that room was full of color. We'll never know. We just see it in black and white. There's a bunch of cute little things like that that kids believe about the world until they learn it. So here's a couple truly embarrassing stories about myself in elementary school making mistakes, big mistakes, but I didn't know better. That's a great excuse for a little kid. I didn't know better. Yeah, don't punish me. I didn't know better. I remember in fourth grade, fourth grade, Mrs. Zander, what a lovely lady, one of the best teachers I ever had. Mrs. Zander was my teacher. Winter break, Hanukkah. Chanukah. How many spellings for that holiday? Hanukkah. I loved Champs. It was the sporting goods and sports fashion apparel store in the mall. By the way, the mall is terrible. That mall in Terralinda. Ugh. Nothing going on. But back in the day, let me tell you, that was the spot. Champs. And Prince Plus for my posters. But Champs. I loved it. And my sister for Hanukkah, she bought me Silk L.A. King's the hockey team, boxer shorts. And that's exactly what it said on the label, boxer shorts. It didn't say boxers. It said boxer shorts. So how old are you in fourth grade? Nine? I think it was probably nine. And I received that Hanukkah gift, and I said, wow, silk boxers or silk boxer shorts. Wait till my class sees me in this. And they looked great. They were white with the LA Kings logo all over it. Silk boxers back in the day? Are you kidding me? That was the coolest thing to me. I don't know why. Silk anything. You remember Parker Lewis Can't Lose, that show? Silk shirts, wild colors. Fresh Prince, he loved the silk shirts too. Silk was in. Silk was big at Mervyn's. So I remember coming back from winter break, and we used to bike to our elementary school. I woke up early. I got on my bike Actually, let me rewind a little bit. I woke up early, and that was still tidy whities for me. Is this an overshare? Of course it is, but come on, I'm eight or nine. Put on my tidy whities and then I put on my boxer shorts, not realizing that boxers are underwear, and I put them on, and then I put on my parka, and then I put on my bike helmet, and then I ride to school. And as I arrive, nobody says anything. It's just me, my parka, in my boxer shorts. I feel like this is going to be a great day to show off. And my classmates, they look at me, and, you know, for the most part, nobody says anything. But the teacher looked at me, Mrs. Zander, and she says, what are you wearing? I said, I'm wearing boxer shorts. They're silk. 
She said, that's an interesting choice. And then class began and we went about our day. And then I remember at lunch, the principal, his name was Mr. Lowasser, another wonderful guy. He used to play football with us at lunch. You know, Mr. Lowasser, good dude. He pulled me aside before football that day. And he said, hey, Josh, I think you're wearing underwear on top of underwear. And I figured, no way. This guy doesn't know about boxer shorts. Hey, Mr. Lowasser, no, no, no. These are shorts. And he goes, nah, I think I've been around this world a little longer than you. You're wearing silk underwear on top of tidy whities and hoping to play football with your classmates today. What do you say maybe we find you some pants? Tasteful pair of Bugle Boy slacks or something? And he didn't like make it mandatory that I had to find pants in the lost and found bin or something and just put them on over my boxers. So I think he let me wear that for the rest of the day. But when I went home, I learned a valuable lesson. Boxer shorts are boxers and boxers are underwear. And to this day, folks, yeah, I wear boxers. Not silk though. Silk seems a little weird. Silk seems a little early 90s R&B. Joe to see. No thanks. Oh, so that's a classic story of I didn't know. You have to teach me first. And if I didn't learn it, I didn't have the common sense to know it. This next story is Halloween is coming. Oh yeah, it's coming. This is probably the most embarrassing story I have. However, I didn't know at the time. So this is also fourth grade. This is still Mrs. Xander. And I'm sure there are some people in my class that year that still remember this. Or maybe not, because it was just normal back then. But let's say the year is 1990, 1990, 28 years ago, Halloween. What's my favorite show? Family Matters. 1990, outside of watching Warriors basketball, I loved Family Matters, the Winslow family. But who was their neighbor? Oh yeah, Steve Urkel, played by Jaleel White. Steve Urkel, to me, was the funniest character I had ever seen, ever. Anything he said, I didn't need the laugh track to trigger my laughter, I would laugh. Anything he said, I would laugh. Loved it. Who am I going to be for Halloween? Steve Urkel. And I really wanted to become Steve Urkel. Really badly. There's just one thing. He's black and I'm white. So I know I could have still gone with the full outfit. Suspenders, glasses, the full nerd outfit. But that wasn't enough for nine-year-old Josh Rosenberg in 1990. If I'm going to be Steve Urkel, I'm going for it. And at the Halloween store, they actually sold all the face paint you needed and the body paint. And what did I get? How wrong is this brown? And for some reason, my parents let me out of the house. Neighbors didn't stop me. Teachers didn't stop me. I painted my face, not realizing how offensive this truly is, how embarrassing this is looking back. But I painted my face all brown. I wanted to be an African-American Steve Urkel. I really wanted this costume to look authentic and genuine and accurate. People have to know I'm Jaleel White today. And I acted like him all day. Did I do that? Which was one of his great catchphrases. And we had a little Halloween parade and there I am, nine-year-old me, marching around, not calling it blackface, but with my brown face paint, setting up a situation where I would offend my future self. Looking at pictures of that, Cringeworthy, of course, but blackface was when the non-black performers in Hollywood were playing the black roles. Why? Because black people were not getting those roles. And when this was happening, the early performers, the early white performers who were painting their faces to portray black people, 
they were contributing to the spread of racial stereotypes, the way they would play black people, was totally offensive. So this is ugly. It's a stain on the old Hollywood game. I didn't know anything about this. It's weird that my teachers didn't say anything. Think about today, though, 2018. I'd be on the front page of the Marin IJ. Seriously, if there was a kid in elementary school who painted his face with brown face paint and came to school, I think that makes the news. Yeah, the news loves the age of outrage, as Joe Rogan calls it. People love to get upset about something nowadays. Oh, they would get upset. Parents would be interviewed on the nightly news. We didn't know. Crying. Being viewed as racist. But that all goes back to kids just need to learn everything. It was not common sense to me back then to just go. With my normal skin tone as Steve Urkel, I had to be authentic. So truly embarrassing, but let this be a lesson, kids. Don't paint yourself black on Halloween. I think we can all understand that, yeah? Have we all come together for some common ground and understanding today? Good, that's my goal. All right, and a lot of the things we do when we're 9 and 10 and 11 years old are supposed to embarrass us later in life as we gain common sense and a true understanding of the world. That'll probably do it for episode 37. There was a lot in this one, I think. All right, I appreciate you tuning in. As always, drop a rating or a review on iTunes if you like. That's episode 37 in the books. I'll talk to you soon.